Welcome everyone to the Pandemonium Podcast, Episode 3, sponsored by the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. Today in the podcast, Dr. Elias and I discuss a groundbreaking paper which was published last year in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. The paper grouped patients receiving a total hip replacement into one of three groups. The first and second group both received a pain regimen of opioid sparing medication like Tylenol and Gabapentin, which is referred to as a multimodal pain regimen. They also received opioid medication. However, the first group received much fewer opioids than the second. The third group received no standing multimodal pain regimen and received the standing dose of traditional opioid medication. The study interestingly found that patients in group A ended up using fewer opioids while reporting less pain and had fewer side effects for the 30 days following the operation. Now today we're lucky enough to have an author of the study, Dr. Antonia Chen, Dr. Chen has an incredibly extensive research background, so I can't fairly talk about all of her accomplishments, but I can outline her background just a bit here. Dr. Antonia Chen is the Director of Research for the Division of Adult Reconstruction and Total Joint Arthroplasty in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Chen graduated from Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, with an undergraduate degree in Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology, after which she received her medical degree from Rutgers Medical School where she graduated with distinction in research and was inducted into the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society. Subsequently, she completed her residency training in the orthopedic surgery at the University of Pittsburgh, followed by her fellowship in hip and knee arthroplasty at the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. Additionally, she sits on multiple editorial boards for orthopedic journals, including the Journal of Bone and Joint Infection, Knee Surgery, Sports Traumatology, Arthroscopy, Bone and Joint 360, and healthcare transformation. For those who are looking to look up this study, it's called the Cluster Randomized Trial of Opioid Sparing Analgesia After Discharge from Elective Hip Surgery. The leading author is Dr. Andrew N. Fleischman. It was published again in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons in October of 2019, Volume 229, Issue 4. We really hope you enjoyed the discussion today. I found it to be incredibly fascinating and truly a groundbreaking study, which will definitely shape the way we prescribe opioids following specific orthopedic procedures. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please visit Apple Podcasts and review us. We really appreciate your feedback. Without further ado, Dr. Chen. Welcome, everyone. This is the third episode of Pandemonium. Tonight, I'm joined with my fellow co-host, Dr. Asif Elias, a orthopedic surgeon here, here in Philadelphia, as well as the founding president of the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and, and Education. Welcome, Dr. Elias. Thanks, Kai. I'm happy to be here. And uh, tonight, we have a very special guest, uh, a true leader in the field of opioid research, uh, Dr. Antonia Chen. Uh, she is a orthopedic surgeon and the Director of Research at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Thank you so much for being here tonight, Dr. Chen. Thanks, it's great to be here. Absolutely. Can you tell me a bit about what brought you into studying opioids and pain management in general? It really started with my patients. You know, as you see patients on the floor, you saw patients asking for more and more opioid medications or expecting pain to be completely eradicated. And in order to completely eradicate pain, they expected it had to be completely gone with opioids. And the problem is as you get opioids on board, it, people either become addicted to it and continue to take it, or they take it and they say, this feels good. Um, and then they expect to continue making their pain zero. So what I was interested in is 
do patients really need that much opioid medication after elective procedures that we perform? Um, and I think it's partly expectation. Um, I would travel to other countries to do surgeries. And when you travel to other countries, Tylenol is enough for them. So I think the idea is patients' expectations here are of a certain level. And if we can address that, then we can improve patients' outcomes. Absolutely. And, and I think one of the things we talked about in previous podcasts is the role of medical education surrounding opioid use. Do you remember, I, I see you went to Rutgers Medical School, by the way. I, I also went to Rutgers for undergraduate, so I was very excited about that. But do you remember any type of opioid education and talking about this issue um, when you were in medical school and residency? So I'm proud to be Jersey. There's no doubt about it. I went to Robert Woods, as you said, for medical school. And at that time, in all honesty, pain was a fifth vital sign. We talked about pain as something that you needed to eradicate. And if your pain was great, you should treat it. Now, of course, we would still want to treat it with non-opioid medications if possible. Um, Anti-inflammatories, Tylenol, medications like that, and Tramadol hopefully being the highest level of pain medication. But opioids were commonly used. And primary care physicians would commonly prescribe it for low back pain, for example, which is a big problem. Uh, but at the time, I don't think we saw it as a big problem, right? We said if their pain is controlled, that's a good thing. And I didn't think that really evolved until I was really a resident or a fellow and actually really as an attending when the opioid crisis came to a head. Can I just make a comment? So and I think what, what Dr. Chen said is so important. She, she already touched on some really big critical issues. I know you're going to expand on a bit. One is, you know, patient expectation and the demands to be aggressive with pain management. Also, the, the issue with, with education and how for a long time we weren't educating our future providers the right way. And I just want to, I just want to acknowledge Dr. Chen. I know you, you, you gave her, gave us your, gave all of us her bio, but really Dr. Chen has been doing some amazing work from the very beginning, ever since I knew her as a fellow and she's gone on to do amazing things, both as a, as a colleague of mine here at the Rothman Institute. And now she went on to do bigger and better things up in Boston at, at Harvard Medical School. But uh, um, it's, it's leaders like her that really make the difference and acknowledge you know, the, the shortcomings in our current strategies. And she's already touched on some critical ones as we get started. Absolutely. And it's important that we talk about because the, the role of research leads to education. So once we know enough about how we can effectively treat pain, thereby we can know enough about how to effectively tell patients what they need or recommend treatment or even teach medical students how to approach this. So Dr. Chen, just to start off, the, the, the paper that we're referring to, the Opioid Prescription in Orthopedic Surgery After Discharge Trial, the Opioid Trial, could you tell me a bit about what uh, provoked it? And could you just give me a, a general understanding of uh, the design and how it was run? So the thought process is, as we were discussing before, we think patients can determine how much they need opioid medications by what their experience is, right? So if they say, well, I'm going to have a lot of pain after surgery, so I need 120 pills after surgery of opioids. And we say, well, is that actually necessary or not? And the answer is probably not necessary. And if it's not necessary, how do we determine that? So originally we wanted a prospective randomized controlled trial, right? And the prospective randomized controlled trials would be you get patients and you randomize them into different groups. But we realized from a logistic aspect, that would be a complete nightmare, right? To be able to do this across all different attendings, all different levels of opioids. So we actually sat down with our statistician and we said, what's the best way to address this? And the best way to address this was what we call this cluster randomization. So instead of randomizing each individual patient, you randomize them by cluster and you don't randomize them by practice. Because what we recognize is the fact that people might respond with pain depending on their surgeon, right? So if a surgeon does a you know, certain approach or a certain thing, they might have quote unquote less pain after surgery. So if you randomize patients, you have to randomize them by surgeon and by practice and things like that. 
So instead of cluster, instead of randomizing each individual, we cluster randomized surgeons. And by cluster randomizing surgeons, we took the surgeon variable out of the factor there. And once we took the surgeon variable out there, it became a logistically more feasible study, one, and two, a more practical study as well, too, because you're taking one factor out of it. So we would take patients, we would take the surgeons and say, all right, you're in group A now, then you're going to move to group B and you're going to move to group C. And we did it based on time because most of our cert operative schedules at Rothman were pretty set. You know, you had a certain number of patients and you were fill, fill that schedule on a regular basis. So the number of patients were very similar across it. And by doing so, it's like a randomized, it is a randomized prospective study, but in a cluster setting. And all of these patients had a, a similar procedure, is that correct? Correct. Hip and knee. Uh, this, this one was just for um, a hip surgery. So we did total hip replacement in this case. Do you find that this procedure and, and Dr. Elias being a, being a hand surgeon, I know that you've done a lot of research with regards to hand surgery, but um, maybe both of you can talk a little bit about because it seems like it's not just one aspect of orthopedic surgery that can benefit from opioid research. It seems like it's across almost the entire genre of, uh, if you can use that term, of orthopedic surgery. And we know this because um, in, cons- in consistent studies that we see, uh, orthopedic surgeons tend to be one of the higher prescribers of opioid medication. So, you know, this is not just focused on one particular specialty. It seems to come across multiple. Yeah, I, I, I definitely would agree with that comment. I would actually say that, you know, we as orthopedic surgeons have embraced uh, this area of study because, as you mentioned, we, we tend to be high prescribers of opioids because of the nature of the type of surgeries that we do. I think we're considered the third highest prescriber of opioids based on, on specialty. Um, but I would say just, I would agree with you in that um, it's not, the findings that we have are frankly easily extrapolated to just about any field, not just uh, subspecialties within orthopedics, but other specialties, particularly when you break it up into its kind of individual parts, which are you know utilizing preoperative education, preoperative counseling, intraoperative using different multimodal pain strategies and postoperatively using evidence-based post-operative prescribing habits and strategies. If you, you can customize that and, and look at that basically in any kind of area of the surgical fields that require opioids afterwards. And I think you'll find what we find have found in our studies and, and like Dr. Chen showed in her study with total hip replacement, I think you can readily extrapolate those findings into just any area. Right, and Dr. Chen, could we just go into a little bit more detail about the actual study design I know sometimes it might get a little bit into the nitty gritty, but I'm, I'm curious as to how you guys decided on the pain regimen strategies uh, for the three groups and what you told the patients within those three groups. So I'm going to back up for two seconds and sing the praises of Dr. Ilias and say Absolutely. that. I, I won't Dr. say Ilias- no. <laughs> He had a huge foresight, honestly, to see opioid as a pain generator uh, or opioids as a a problem uh, when I was a fellow. And in all honesty, we're probably the most guilty as total joint surgeons and spine surgeons. Now, patients were getting discharged with 120 pills after surgery, and not because they necessarily needed it, because it prevented patients from having to come back into the office get a prescription and call again. So it was actually to minimize work for the team. Um, And then you can say, here, take the pills. You probably won't need all of them. It's easier to give more than to give less before we knew it was really a problem. And Dr. Ilias's point, and Dr. Ilias being in my phone as Dr. Ilias, um, really saw this as an opportunity for education as one thing, and to making a change in our patients' lives. And I think that's the whole point of research. We all do this research because we want to improve our patients' lives. And by doing so, and patients don't necessarily realize that reducing the opioids can improve their lives. 
So when it came to the study, to your question about how we chose these different groups, the most important thing was really to start with the multimodal pain regimen, as Dr. Lewis was saying. Uh, and group A and group B, the, the tenant of it was based on multimodal pain medication. Um, and really what it comes down to is how you craft the story. And the crafting of the story is you actually don't need narcotics necessarily after surgery. You only need them as needed. So when you kind of post it like that, groups A and B uh, make a lot of sense because narcotics are only as needed. Uh, and how we crafted it is on average, we would give about one week's worth of um, pills after surgery. So if you do, you know, four hours, it'd probably be 40, 40 to 60 met pills. If you do a one week's worth, that's kind of our breakdown here in the Boston or Massachusetts area. So 60 pills is what we were traditionally discharging patients with at the time. So that's how you got groups B and C is they would get 60 pills of um, narcotic medication of oxycodone. And we would do oxycodone and tramadol as kind of the two main stalwarts of medication. But group A was really the innovative one where we said, do patients really need that much medication? So 60 was our standard nurse care. And then we added multimodal to group B. And then we made group C the one that had no multimodal, um, but did add the um, Tylenol to it and really focused on narcotics as the base. And then for group A, multimodal was the base. And then you had oxycodone um, and tramadol as extras to it. Um, and interestingly, when we were introducing the study to patients, we say, hey, we're doing the study, we're randomizing patients um, to different groups of narcotics. Um, patients were on board because one, um, it was one of those things where they say, well, you know, this is what my surgeon does. And that's what we, we portrayed it as, right? Because it's a cluster group, your surgeon's gonna be doing that for a two month period of time and then switch to another group and switch to another group. So they're like, this is the pain regimen that we have, take it or leave it. And of course they're like, well, I want surgery and I'm gonna need some pain medications afterwards. So they took it, um, recognizing that that way we truly were randomizing our patients. So in that context, patients did agree to participate in the study. Um, and as the study findings show, it's, it's not a huge difference, right? That you gave them 60 pills and 10 pills. If I were a patient, I'd be like, I only get 10 pills, that's it? That sounds like when you go to the emergency room, they give you a two-day dose or two-day you know, setting there. But it turned out that it was actually enough medications for patients, even after a major surgery like total hip replacement. Right. And, and that's interesting because uh, a lot of times patients may, you know, Google or research how much traditional pain medication is given after a surgery and they may think about their uh, and affect the results of the study because of that. So that's fascinating. that You guys you know, had to think about that beforehand. And so what you found was was fascinating. Um, I mean, I hate I hate to be a spoiler, but it helped. It, it showed a significant difference in certain areas. Could you walk me through some of those? Interestingly enough, we thought that the pain levels, the hypothesis would be that they at least be similar through them, right? But the patients who actually had less opioid medication had lower pain than the group that got the traditional amount of opioid medication without a multimodal medic uh, pain regimen. So and, really and the, the tool that you were using to assess the pain, the, the VAS scale, the, the um, it's called the, the visual acuity scale, is that what it is? Yeah. Uh, pretty much, you know, it, it's a scale that a lot of us have seen, visual analog scale. Uh, a pain scale a lot of us have seen, it, it's zero to 10, 10 being the worst pain you can feel. And everyone knows those pictures that you see the smiley face all the way to the big frowny face. And this is the scale that you're using to follow up um, every day for 30 days. 
correct? Yep. It's actually, we use a sliding scale to be perfectly honest. They get a mark where it is. And then based on the distance from there, that's how we measured um, their actual pain amount was. So it allowed them to go into percentages, right? You could go like 7.3 or, you know, 6.2 or something like that, as opposed to just necessarily whole integer numbers. Uh, and that gave us a little bit more refined, uh, I would say, um, display of the data. Uh, but daily pain was lower. Duration of opioid use was also shorter. Now, to be fair, they got less pills. So that seemed to make sense. And the nice thing about it is that we saw the group that got the least number of opioids had the least side effects from it. So not only was it the pain less, your side effects were less. So from a patient perspective, like, well, why wouldn't I want that? Why wouldn't I want less pain and less side effects in the long run? And, and just to add to that, and, and, uh, and Antonio, just for, for the listeners, so they, so they know when we say multimodal pain strategy. So the groups that were based on multimodal pain strategy, that multimodal was basically meant they received Tylenol before surgery and then for four weeks after on a regular basis. They received gabapentin before surgery and then for four weeks after or Neurontin. They also received an NSAID. I think in your study it was Meloxicam for two weeks and they got Prilosec or Omeprazole, I think, if they needed as well. So that was your multimodal Tylenol, Neurontin, Mobic basically was the multimodal. And that's what the primary regimen was for, the, for two of the groups. And then they received 10 opioids as backups in group A 60 opioids is backup in group B. And then group C only received opiates, didn't have the multimodal, they got 60. Is that right? That's exactly right. And the key factor that you're touching on here is that this multimodal regimen is not just different modes of pills, because it sounds like a lot of pills to take actually, but they actually affect the system of pain regimens in different ways, right? So you say meloxicam or Mobic, that's an anti-inflammatory. Tylenol works on a different regimen. So does um, Neurontin, uh, different receptors. You know, and the idea here is that you're attacking pain from different aspects of it. Some people have burning pain after surgery that sounds more nerve-like and that's where gabapentin um, is helpful for patients versus a sharp pain afterwards. Maybe that's where the opioids can address that pain that's in the immediate post-operative period. So it, it does tackle multiple different areas that affect patients after surgery. And just to build on that, so there's this concept of the pain pathway that there's basically, and this is an oversimplification, but basically three points where pain is, is, is processed or affected. One is at the tissue level, like where, like where you hurt yourself, where you have surgery, where there's trauma. Uh, two is the pathway from the tissue to the brain. So the path of the nerve or the root of the nerve. And the third is the receptors in the brain that interpret those symptoms, uh, those signals. Uh, and all these medications affect different parts of those pathways. And actually opioids pri primarily affect the, at the very top at, at the brain level in terms of perception of uh, the pain through its effect on the receptors, but the multimodal affect them at different points. So the gabapentin affects both the receptor response as well as the pathway, acetaminophen affects the local tissue as well as receptor and then the, and then the anti-inflammatory is at the tissue level. So there's three points where they get them. So you kind of tackle them from different points and oftentimes negate, to, negate the need to even use the opioids and that becomes more of a secondary or backup agent rather than the primary agent. Dr. Elias, if you can touch upon one thing that we talked about previously, um, we were saying that the, the group A received obviously less opioids to begin with, but they had less, they, they finished their, their pills uh, sooner. And I wanted to ask you, I know you've done a lot of research on stuff like diversion, 
uh, and opioids coming specifically from uh, prescribers and how that's affecting addiction in this country. Uh, what, how, why is it so important to have patients finish their supply uh, earlier? Well, it, it's so let me frame it in a different way. So just two parts to that uh, question. One is this concept of diversion is that when we prescribe opiates, um, and they're not used, right? They sit in, in someone's house, their medicine cabinet, and that, become, that becomes uh, an agent available for potential abuse, either by the patient or the patient's family member or, or anyone the patient is in contact with. So when, you, when you're writing for these pills, don't assume it's just that uh, it's the patient themselves. You're, you're disseminating these pills into that patient's respective community. And that's how you need to think about it because Unlike, say, an antibiotic or, you know, insulin or some other thing, they, they don't have a lot of street value uh, and they don't have a lot of abuse value, but uh, opioids have both street value and abuse value. So we have to be mindful of the total numbers that we're giving um, patients. And as Dr. Chen mentioned, and myself included, we were not very cognizant of the numbers that we were giving uh, out. And what we were doing was essentially, not always, but often, prescribing a number to avoid phone calls, prescribing a number to avoid having the patient the inconvenience of having to seek a refill, uh, prescribing a number where we didn't wanna miss someone who had a high um, pain requirement, uh, prescribing a high number that we didn't have to worry about a weekend refill, all those type of issues. But oftentimes people didn't need those pills. And when we study that in detail through multiple studies, through multiple specialties, um, the, the, the unused rates are anywhere from 50% to two thirds. So that's where diversion becomes a big, big problem. And what we've been advocating for through our research and through the foundation is we should prescribe and after you do all the things that Dr. Chen's doing in terms of multimodal pain strategy, in terms of educating your patients preoperatively and prescribing a good amount postoperatively is ultimately prescribe your opioids to the amount that they'll need for that procedure. So for example, what someone will need for Dr. You know, Chen's total hip replacement may be different from my total wrist replacement or total elbow replacement or to someone's spinal fusion or to a hernia repair. So we shouldn't prescribe the same number. We should look at what someone typically needs and prescribe to that number. And if they need a refill, that's the better way to go. It's better to do an occasional refill than to overprescribe everybody. So it's, it's definitely safe to say that we need to rethink uh, opioid treatment following some certain orthopedic procedures, Dr. Chen, is that fair? Yeah, it's very fair. Actually, a group up here, hand ex upper extremity group, um, devised an algorithm to follow to your point, Dr. Elias, about um, how many pills you prescribe for a rotator cuff repair versus a carpal tunnel release, you know, and, and by limiting the numbers for based on procedure, and they did it regardless surgeon, but they only had a few surgeons within the group. Um, they were able to control pain and reduce the number of refills. Um, it's actually been very helpful to have two things I would say. One is state mandated, um, uh, a centralized database of how many opioids a patient gets, which is very helpful. Um, and the second thing too, is that we only prescribe one week's worth of opioid medication when a patient's discharged. And exactly what Dr. Ilias is saying is that we don't refill, uh, we don't put any refills on the medication. They have to call our office and that triggers a discussion with them. We want to understand their pain. If under, if understand if something's going wrong, right? If their pain is increasing, there might be something that's wrong, and we don't want to just treat it by opioid medications. So it helps prompt better patient care, I would say, and helps patients understand that pain is okay and normal, and that it'll slowly get better over time. 
Dr. Chen, just to add to that, how is this, how is the study affected? You said personally it affected your, your pain practice to uh, change the way you guys prescribe opioids following specific surgeries. Has this had any influence on other specialties within your hospital? I would say it definitely affected total joints because again, we used to prescribe at least 60 pills and now I prescribe less than 60 pills on a regular basis. Now there are some exceptions to it and I still do under 60 for almost every patient. Um, but if there are chronic pain medications before surgery, I try that to get them to stop chronic pain medications before surgery. And we work with their chronic pain physicians before that in order to reduce it. So we don't have to give as many pills postoperatively as well. When it comes to other services, the nice thing about it is just like Dr. Ilias's group, each group has kind of taken initiative to reduce the number of pain medications. So trauma has worked on it, hand and upper extremity, um, even oncology and other groups like that have too, have taken the helm and saying, look, we don't want to contribute to the opioid crisis and we want to improve it. So after surgery, we'll limit the number and then give medications as needed. The other thing I would add, I would add to that, Kaim, is that um, Dr. Shin mentioned, there's always going to be some exceptions, right? And that's okay. We're, you know, we're not in the business of making your patients suffer. So if someone has a dynamic that requires more opioids and more pain medication, we'll do that. That's fine. And there's always going to be exceptions, but the key is not to prescribe to the exceptions. So because an occasional patient might need more opioids than another, it doesn't mean that we give everyone more opioids. So we'll address those exceptions as they come up, but we have to, as prescribers, we have to follow the more you know, evidence-based protocols in terms of what is a typical consumption for a procedure X. And then you prescribe to that number. So when they fall off that number and have more than, like, like Dr. Jin said, that's a trigger for us. And if there's truly an exceptional patient for whatever circumstance, and there are many circumstances that warrant that, then we'll address them accordingly. And th there are patients, even myself, that I end up giving high levels of opiates for that are way off the norm for me, but everyone's a little bit different and you have to adjust accordingly. But it's the generalities that we have to move away from. Absolutely. And one, one, one thing I wanted to bring up before uh, we end here, uh, I know we're getting a little bit short on time, but I saw that you had done a previous study, Dr. Chen, looking at the cost of uh, healthcare following people who had received pre-op opioids. And you had found that in certain uh, populations that had increased, the, the cost of healthcare had increased following the procedure. Can you touch a bit upon, um, you know, obviously there's a huge detrimental effect to addiction in terms of the patient's life. I mean, we know that almost 130 patients, uh, people a day, uh, approximately, uh, are dying from opioid abuse and, and overdose. Um, but what about the cost? Could we see a significant cost in healthcare reduction? So the answer is absolutely. And it's not just addiction, actually. A lot of our patients after our procedures don't necessarily get addicted. But the problem is if they have prolonged opioid use or higher chronic opioid use, they might be coming back to the emergency room, for example, because they have pain. And we do have patients who come back and they're like, I'm out of pills, I'm in a lot of pain, you need to see me. And that costs the hospital system or that costs the healthcare system overall. Um, that also incurs more visits to the orthopedic surgeon as well with regards to pain. It, require, it also incurs more visits to the primary care doctors and even chronic pain specialists. And if that's the case, then that obviously taxes the system where maybe other patients could be seen in that place. So it hurts the system in the long run. Um, and it also hurts patients too, as we've seen from COVID, the more exposure you have to the hospital system, the more sick people you can be around, you know, and you have an increased risk of COVID. So that's a, a societal cost, not a physical cost or actual cost to the system. Um, but all these things add up. The number of pills themselves, there's a lot of side effects that come with them too. Somnolence, right? If they're driving, that can lead to accidents. 
Um, there's other side effects that come with it, you know, that definitely can lead to complications in the long run. Even small things like constipation, while seemingly a small thing, really affects our patients, especially older patient populations. So these all cost the system in the long run. If you need to go see gastroenterologist, if you come to the emergency room for constipation, which unfortunately does happen. So if we can avoid that, that's a good thing. Right. Um, and it's, it's fascinating that you showed in your study the, the reduction in multiple side effects. Uh, did you see a, a reduction in uh, GI-related issues as well? We did. Fascinating. And just to, to finish off, how has, how has COVID uh, and, and telemedicine uh, affected telehealth related to specifically pain management with, with patients? We were talking before about uh, patients who had uh, had to come in and, and request more opioids. Um, have you found it more challenging and, and what have you done to kind of help the process for people who are seeking treatment uh, for opioid abuse uh, or in general, just people who are asking for more opioids in their, in their management of their pain? So for opioid abuse, a lot of them will actually see our pain management specialist, which is helpful. But I would say from an orthopedic surgeon standpoint, the benefit of virtual medicine and uh, virtual visits is that if a patient's asking for a refill, instead of having to bring them back into the clinic, I can have a conversation like this with them over Zoom and over video. And so I can see them, talk to them, and try to understand why their pain is what it is and why they're asking for more pain medications. If they're asking for more pain medications because there's a problem, then I'm going to bring them in. Right. And we say, well, maybe that's an issue. I need to address it by looking at x-ray, examining you, things like that. But in the grand scheme of things, most of the time, it's a time, it's an opportunity for me to educate patients. So by doing a virtual visit, I can educate patients on what they need and what they don't need necessarily, and how we can mitigate pain through different modalities than just opioids. And I think this this last question would be for for the both of you, um, Dr. Ilias, if you can address this. Uh, where do you, where do you see the future of uh, this type of research going? You know, obviously we need to look specifically at where had our prescribing procedures for pain, um, but do you see any any additive effect in other parts of healthcare? Oh yeah, I actually think that you know we're at the uh, we're just at the tip of of research in, in the pain management sphere. You know, we, we take it, we take an oath to do no harm. And I think the reason why many of us have embraced this is that we found that in our efforts to deliver good care and take care of people, we're finding that we're inadvertently exposing them to opioids and many of them are becoming addicted to them and unfortunately dying from them. So I think there's a lot of work to do in the space and it's very influential work because if we can, you know, make a difference in even a handful of people, it's, it's highly worthwhile. And what I'm hoping is the, the work that we've done in the in the orthopedic space will start to, to grow in all the other surrounding surgical specialties and it's already happening. And then the next level will be developing alternative pain management strategies that are less reliant on opioid safer strategies like Dr. Chen showed in, in her study. And again, I just wanna echo the quality of the study, the, the meaning of it, it's, it's very strong. I mean, uh, you know, a prescribing 60 opioids after a total hip or knee uh, is, was totally routine, if not more. Um, as a resident 15 plus years ago, we would routinely write out 120 pills was not anything abnormal whatsoever to do. And, and just, you know, her study showed that a very basic multimodal pain strategy wasn't, none of the medication uses expensive Tylenol and NSAIDs and gabapentin are extremely cheap. Prilosec or H2 blockers or, or proton pump inhibitors are very cheap. Um, and basically just the, the last one of our interesting findings in our study, just to reiterate, uh, 
Besides the fact that their outcomes were the same, pain experience was as good or if not better in the lower opiate group with multimodal. Adverse events were obviously lower with multimodal but since they were taking less opiates. If you look at the refill numbers, which is often a big reason why people prescribe what they do, <clears throat> in the group that only received 10, uh, um, 10 opiates uh, using a multimodal pain strategy, which was group A in our study, their oxycodone refill rate was 10%. And the group that had no multimodal and just had 60 opiate pill, uh, pills, their refill rate was higher at 15.6%. It's actually 50% higher when they got 50 more pills. So that's, I mean, that's so stark to me and, and, and such an easy strategy. And, and some might say, maybe 10% refill rate in group A is high. I don't think that's high at all. And particularly with our, with many of our uh, governments allowing for electronic prescribing, it's just not a big deal to have to prescribe as it used to be, which is really to the benefit of everyone. So I think we're at the tip of the spear to answer your question, Kaiman, and the work that people like Dr. Chen are doing is, is making a huge difference. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, both of you guys for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I am, I'm looking forward not just to reading future studies from both of you, but uh, also just having more of an education on this topic. And I think it's really important. So thank you so much for coming on today. Great job. Thanks a lot, Thanks, guys. Thanks, Antonio. It was great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If I could just have one minute of your time, I'd like to let you know of the sponsor of the podcast, the Rothman Foundation for Opioid Research and Education. This foundation is a 501c3 non-for-profit organization. It's a wonderful foundation dedicated to providing resources and insight into the opiate epidemic, as well as who it affects and how we're addressing the issue. The objectives of the organization are threefold. The first is to raise awareness in the lay and medical communities of the risks and benefits of safe opioid use. The second is to educate patients, physicians, and policymakers on safe opioid use after injuries and surgeries. And the third is to support research and educational efforts in improving and innovating pain management strategies that can result in decreased opioid use and advance alternatives to opioids. If this sounds like something you would be interested in supporting, please visit rothmanopioid.org and see the tab to donate. Thank you so much, and we appreciate your support.